In the early afternoon of November 16, 1928, a stiff wintry breeze picked up at Phantom Ranch deep in the Grand Canyon. The campsite was a popular stop for boats along the rocky shoreline of the Colorado River. This section was a meeting point for hikers and boaters in the untamed canyons of Arizona. One of those hikers, a wealthy outdoorsman named Adolf Sutro, noticed an enormous wooden boat tied up at the shoreline. As he looked it over, a young couple approached and introduced themselves as the owners. They were Glenn and Bessie Hyde, and they were on their honeymoon. Their journey over the rapids and around huge boulders had been risky and exhausting, but they were having a grand adventure. Sutro was intrigued. He asked if he could accompany them for a few miles down the river before he hiked back. They agreed, and the next day, Sutro hopped aboard. Glenn guided the boat with skill and poise, and by the time they reached the next set of giant rapids, the three were famished. They decided to make camp and have a meal together before turning in for the night. The next morning, Sutro took a photograph of the couple and prepared to hike back upriver. He watched them cast off from the rocks, maneuvering the flat vessel into the flowing current. Glenn took the massive oars and Bessie huddled at the bottom of the boat, out of the wind. Their homemade vessel rounded the next bend in the river, careening toward another set of rapids. It was November 18th, 1928, and that was the last time Glenn and Bessie Hyde were ever seen. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're looking into the disappearance of Glenn and Bessie Hyde, a newlywed couple who set sail down the Colorado River in 1928 and were never heard from again. Their boat was found floating in excellent condition a month after they were last seen. But Glenn and Bessie were nowhere in sight. The Hydes vanished sometime between November 18th and December 20th, 1928. When their boat was discovered, Bessie's journal was still tucked inside. Her last entry was dated November 30th. Speculation began almost immediately as searchers combed the riverbanks. In the decades that followed, incredible coincidences and long-hidden clues fueled theories about the couple's demise. 
The hypotheses ranged from scientifically sound to completely implausible, with a wide range of witnesses and evidence left as clues to the vanished couple's fate. We'll explore several of the most enduring theories about Glenn and Bessie's disappearance. Some believe that the Hydes were foolhardy risk-takers who drowned in the raging river. If this was the case, how did their scow come to be tied up in a shallow pool, miles downriver from where they were last seen? Other theorists focus on the homemade boat, which was later found unscathed and anchored in calm water. Did they abandon the vessel and try to hike out of the canyon? If so, why were their bodies never found? A gruesome final hypothesis emerged after a woman claiming to be Bessie Hyde revisited the canyon over 40 years later and admitted to killing her husband. If it was a murder, the solution could lie in Bessie's early days, which hold almost as much mystery as her death. Bessie Louise Haley was born in Maryland, not far from the U.S. Capitol, on December 29, 1905. In 1922, her family moved to Parkersburg, West Virginia. Bessie was a precocious 16-year-old who threw herself into activities and clubs. She starred in the school play, joined the debate team, and wrote for the yearbook. She was a brilliant student and planned to graduate a full semester early. In her senior year, Bessie met Earl Helmick, a quiet young man who enjoyed gardening and singing. The two of them co-authored much of the senior annual and graduated together in February 1924. For the next two years, Bessie and Earl went to separate colleges. Staying in West Virginia, Bessie studied art and design, maintaining perfect grades. She lived on campus until her sophomore year, when she took a secretary job at the local YWCA. Then, near the end of her second year in college, 20-year-old Bessie abruptly left school to join Earl in Kentucky. They were married at a courthouse there on June 5, 1926. But by early August, less than two months after her wedding, Bessie had moved to San Francisco, alone. She enrolled in the California School of Fine Arts and lived on her own. She never explained her sudden marriage or her solo move to the West Coast. Six months later, in February 1927, she booked passage with an actress friend on a steamship to Los Angeles. They were going to try their fortunes in Hollywood. Bessie was 21 years old, and her life was already shrouded in mystery. But she was about to meet a man who would change the course of her future. Glenn Rollin Hyde was born on December 9, 1898, in Spokane, Washington. At the time, Spokane was an outpost for timber and land speculation. Glenn's father, R.C. Hyde, had made a small fortune selling land, and Glenn grew up in the forests among hard-working outdoorsmen. His mother, Mary, died in 1911, a few days after Glenn's 13th birthday. Devastated, R.C. moved his family north to British Columbia. Glenn spent every hour outside of school and sports working outside with his father. Vacations were spent camping, fishing, and hiking. Glenn also learned how to canoe on the vast rivers of Canada. He took to boating quickly, spending plenty of time on the water until the family moved again in 1915 to southern Idaho. 
Glenn spent the next 10 years in and out of college, finally quitting for the last time in 1923. He took a job as an irrigation worker in Idaho. Glenn was 26, and his outdoor knowledge and building skills had been finely honed. In late August 1926, Glenn and his sister Jean decided to take a boat down the Salmon River, which ran near their family home in Idaho. Glenn wanted to try a kind of watercraft he hadn't used before. It was called a scow, a simple but heavy wooden craft. It was boxy and angular. Some said it resembled a coffin without a lid. The vessel was controlled with two massive oars called sweeps that pivoted on the front and back of the boat. Jean described the vessel in a short story she wrote. She said, The boat was a flat-bottom scow, measuring 5 by 16 feet. A platform was built in the middle where the boatman was to stand. Meeting there were the two sweep oars, extending out into the water about 4 feet. The trip was a success and confirmed Glenn's ability as a boatman. He was a quick learner, and now he had confidence in his skills after piloting the big scow on the river. Glenn enjoyed being on the water, even when he was taking a quick vacation in California. And soon, he'd take a cruise that would change his life. In February 1927, the most popular way to get from San Francisco to Los Angeles was aboard the steamships Harvard and Yale. They were fast luxury ships that ran in international waters between the cities at the height of Prohibition. On weekends, a passenger could book a round-trip ticket for a Friday night and dance, drink, and eat for two days before returning on Monday. It was a never-ending party, a wonderful quick getaway, and a stylish route between cities for those who felt like disembarking. Nobody knows for certain why Glenn was heading to Los Angeles in February 1927, but he ended up on the same ship as Bessie. By the time the luxury liner docked, he and Bessie had met and fallen in love. Their relationship blossomed quickly in the ensuing months. They were both head over heels. That summer, Bessie joined Glenn and his family in Idaho on a camping trip. A few weeks later, Glenn went to West Virginia to meet Bessie's parents. But then things began to go wrong. Bessie was still married to Earl Helmick, her high school sweetheart. And Earl had heard she was back in town with another man. He showed up at the Haley's doorstep to talk to his wife. Glenn stepped in to protect Bessie, who rebuffed Earl and asked for a divorce before the situation could escalate. The day after her marriage to Earl was dissolved, April 10, 1928, Bessie returned to Idaho and married Glenn. For their honeymoon, Glenn convinced Bessie to take a trip down 800 miles of the mighty Colorado River. They'd see the untamed wilderness, spend nights under the stars, and explore places no one had ever been. Glenn would build the scow himself, and Bessie would be the first woman to ever float down the Grand Canyon. The trip would make them famous. It would be dangerous, yes, but Glenn was sure they'd have the time of their lives. The couple set out from Green River, Utah, on Saturday, October 20th, 1928. Glenn's 20-foot-long homemade scow still smelled of fresh pine. 
the couple expected to complete their journey in about a month and a half. But by the end of the fourth week, Bessie's energy seemed to be waning. The Hydes reached a campsite called Grand Canyon Village on November 15th, and Bessie composed a letter to her mother, writing that she was quite tired. At this stopover, they met 47-year-old Emery Kolb. He was a longtime Grand Canyon inhabitant and renowned photographer who ran a studio on the South Rim. Emery spent much of the afternoon of November 16th with the couple, talking about the river and their journey so far. He recalled Bessie's apprehension at the vicious rapids they'd approached downriver in the coming days. That was when Kolb noticed that the pair didn't have any life preservers. When he mentioned this glaring oversight and offered them two of his own life jackets, they simply looked at each other and smiled. Glenn declined his offer. As they left the studio, Emery's daughter came in to greet the couple. Bessie noticed the girl's footwear and said, I wonder if I'll ever wear pretty shoes again. With that, she followed her husband back down to the boat. On the same stopover, Glenn and Bessie met Adolf Sutro, the wealthy outdoorsman who was intrigued by their giant boat. He asked to accompany them for a few miles downriver, after which he'd hike back up to the village camp. Sutro had a camera, and he took a portrait of Glenn and Bessie on November 17th. She wore her leather jacket, gazing into the lens, her face mysterious, weary, and calm. Glenn, towering several inches above his wife, gave a sly smile and chivalrously doffed his hat. It was the last photograph ever taken of the pair. They dropped Sutro off at midday on November 18, 1928, after which the Hydes planned to head into a section of the river called Hermit Rapid. Hermit was a treacherous stretch dotted by jagged rocks, and they wanted to get through it quickly and into the calmer waters 15 miles further downriver. They never made it. Sutro was the last person to see Glenn and Bessie alive. Coming up, we'll hear about the search for the hides and the theories that emerged regarding their disappearance. Now back to the story. In November 1928, 29-year-old Glenn and 23-year-old Bessie Hyde were halfway through their 800-mile honeymoon trip. Their homemade pine scow boat had brought them down the Colorado River all the way from Utah to the Grand Canyon. On November 16th, Glenn signed the guest book at Grand Canyon Village, a well-known stop below the rim. He wrote, Going down the river, November 16th to 28th, in a flat-bottom boat. Several people were camped there at the same time as the Hydes, and their eyewitness accounts became the basis for speculation after the couple later vanished. Ray Tankersley, a river guide, remembered being impressed by Glenn's skill. He said, I had the pleasure of meeting them. The scow was nothing but a box, but Glenn was a wizard at handling that raft. Adolf Sutro, the last person to see them alive, disagreed with Tankersley's assessment of the boat. Sutro said, I was skeptical. It was the most inadequately equipped outfit I had ever seen. I couldn't understand how they got so far. But not only had the Hydes made it so far on the river, they'd done it ahead of schedule. 
They'd originally planned to finish the six-week trip on December 6th, but now Glenn was optimistic that they would wrap up by the end of November. They said their goodbyes to Sutro on November 18th and continued toward their final stop in Needles, California. Glenn's father, R.C. Hyde, expected a telegram when the newlyweds arrived. But by December 9th, there'd been no sighting or communication from the couple in three weeks. R.C. anxiously checked for news about his son every day. On December 11th, Glenn and Bessie were officially late. There was still no news from them on December 12th, so R.C. bought a train ticket to Nevada. He knew that if there'd been an accident on the river, Glenn and Bessie could be injured or out of food. Rescue needed to come fast or the couple would perish. If they were still alive, that is. If they were dead, finding their bodies along 400 miles of the most inaccessible terrain in North America would be nearly impossible. But R.C. was determined to find his son and daughter-in-law. When he arrived in California, nobody had seen Glenn or Bessie. They hadn't made it that far. So R.C. headed upriver into Arizona to retrace the couple's steps. Meanwhile, he wrote to the governors of Idaho and West Virginia, Glenn and Bessie's respective home states, begging them for help with the search. Time was of the essence, he argued. His pleas soon reached the desk of President Calvin Coolidge, who directed the Army to begin aerial searches of the river on December 17th. Meanwhile, R.C. headed to Grand Canyon Village, where the Hides had posted their final letters. On December 18th, he approached Emery Kolb, the river expert who'd offered life jackets to the couple, for assistance. R.C. told him, The time we can hope to find them grows short. The next day, an army plane spotted a boat floating in a calm pool, 30 miles downriver from the last place the hides had been seen. Kolb had examined their vessel at the camp, so he joined another flyover and positively identified the empty boat. It was Glenn and Bessie's homemade scow. When they landed back up on the canyon rim high above the water, Emery agreed to take the boat back down and search the craft. But it would take several days to get there. The stretch of river above the boat was treacherous, with some of the worst rapids of the entire Colorado River. Kolb and his search team made it to the empty scow on December 25, 1928. The boat had a few inches of water in the bottom, but was otherwise dry and watertight. Bessie's journal, Glenn's rifle, their leather hiking boots, and plenty of food was still stowed away. All that was missing was Glenn and Bessie themselves. A rope led over the side of the boat into the water. One of the searchers pulled on it, but it was stuck tight in the rocks below. It appeared as though the hides had simply tied up the scow and gone for a short hike along the shoreline. But if the couple had left the boat, they hadn't come back. Bessie's final journal entry was dated November 30th, over three weeks before. The searchers called out for the couple, but there was no answer. There were no tracks along the rocky shoreline and didn't seem to be a trail or other escape up the sheer walls along the small pool. Kolb and his team tried to free the scow, but it was stuck fast. They sliced the rope, and one of the men piloted the boat into the river current. 
If the Hydes had left the boat intentionally, the rescuers had just cut their best hope of survival. If they returned for supplies or to continue the trip, they'd find themselves trapped in the canyon. But Emery Kolb was already developing his own theory about the Hyde's disappearance. He believed they'd had an accident on the river and drowned. The rapids along the Colorado River below Hermit Creek were notorious. A river rapid is usually comprised of three parts. The first is the obstacle, like a boulder or a series of rocks that create a wave in the river. Along the Colorado River, obstacles include ancient boulders and rockfalls from the high cliffs above. Sharp edges and huge granite slabs are piled up, invisible under the rushing water. These stones are dangerous to boats and deadly to swimmers. The current rolls over the obstacles and creates a pour-over, a swift-moving rush of water speeding faster than the rest of the river. Once a boat or a body is caught in the pour-over, it's impossible to escape. The water in the pour-over drops behind the obstacle, but in front of the wave, creating a rolling boil of water called the hole. Objects can get trapped in the hole, spinning over and over as the pour-over pushes them down underwater, and the resulting wave pushes back against the obstacle. Even a person in a life jacket can quickly drown in this vicious cycle. The rolling water may take minutes or hours to spit out something trapped in the hole. Objects and clothes become waterlogged and heavy, dragging them down even deeper. Dead bodies can sink quickly after being spit out of the rapid and end up far downriver. A famous example of this phenomenon happened 30 years after the hides disappeared. In 1949, a well-known river guide named Bert Loper flipped his homemade boat in the Colorado River. He quickly went under and his body disappeared. 26 years later, his skeleton was found on the rocky shore almost 50 miles downriver from where he capsized. His death was a good example of the terrible accidents that could occur on the river with no warning, leaving no evidence behind. There was no way to predict what might happen to corpses in the Colorado River. If the hides had drowned, their bodies might never be discovered. But if the rapids had been strong enough to wash the couple overboard, they should have wrecked the boat too. However, the homemade vessel was found upright and almost completely dry, with a rope anchoring it to the rocks. Presumably, a living person would have to tie it off. If the scow hadn't capsized in a rapid, it likely hadn't thrown both Glenn and Bessie into the river. Furthermore, Glenn had repeatedly proven his skill in keeping the boat steady through the roiling current. How had they both ended up in the water, unable to get back on board the scow? The answer might have been the boat itself. The giant sweep oars were very heavy, and in tempestuous rapids, they had a tendency to slam wildly against the floor and sides of the scow. If Glenn lost control, the oar could easily have knocked him from the steering platform. And then Bessie could have foolishly jumped in after him, or thrown the rope that the rescuers found trailing overboard stuck in the rocks. There was later speculation that there might have been a body stuck at the other end of the rope, waterlogged and tangled in the murky depths. 
On the other hand, if Bessie had gone overboard, Glenn would have jumped in after her. She was the love of his life, and he would have done anything to save her. Glenn was also a strong swimmer, and there were many places he could have pulled Bessie ashore near the section where the scow was found. With this in mind, R.C. Hyde wasn't convinced that Glenn and Bessie were dead at all. Maybe they were simply lost in the canyons. Glenn was an experienced hiker, and R.C. knew that if the boat had gotten away from them, he and Bessie would try to hike out. But if they had decided to abandon their scow and trek out of the canyon, why did they leave their boots? Even at a healthy pace, the couple was still several days' walk from the nearest help. And would Bessie really have left her journal behind if they were quitting the river? Why wouldn't Glenn bring his rifle to hunt if they were forced to walk out? There were no clear answers, and searching hundreds of miles of river canyons would be an exhausting and nearly hopeless task. But 70-year-old R.C. tried anyway. He strapped on a backpack and headed down the canyon to Hermit Creek on January 17, 1929. Over the next four days, he walked the river shore from their last campsite all the way to where the scow was found. He saw no sign of Glenn or Bessie. When he emerged from the canyon on January 21, 1929, he heard the terrible news. A body had been found in a small dead-end canyon off the river. It was a man in his mid-twenties who died of starvation and exposure. The newspapers were saying it could be Glenn Hyde. But the papers were wrong. The corpse wasn't Glenn. It was a man named Cecil Cutler who had been attempting to hike to Las Vegas. He had gotten lost in the canyons and perished after a month. Glenn and Bessie had been gone without a trace for even longer than Cecil, 63 days. By this point, R.C. finally had to accept that they were dead but he wasn't going to stop searching. Over the next 15 years, R.C. went broke hunting for his son and daughter-in-law's bodies. He died penniless in 1945 without solving the mystery. But 30 years after R.C. Hyde's death, a young man's corpse was discovered that fueled a new theory, and it was found in Emery Kolb's boathouse. Coming up, we'll explore whether Bessie Hyde was a murderer. Now, back to the story. Newlyweds Glenn and Bessie Hyde vanished along the Colorado River sometime between November 30th and December 19th, 1928. Their homemade scow was found floating, fully intact, with their supplies and personal effects still aboard but completely abandoned. Glenn's father, R.C. Hyde, believed that the couple had left the boat behind in an attempt to hike out of the Grand Canyon. But he could find no evidence of this, despite searching till the day he died. By 1970, the general consensus was that the Hydes had drowned in the river. Meanwhile, in the decades following their disappearance, the stretch of the Colorado River along the Grand Canyon had become the focus of a thriving tourism industry. 
guided excursions on well-equipped rubber boats brought tourists and adventure seekers through the rapids with ease. Training and rescue equipment was mandatory for guides, and life jackets were required for passengers. The story of the Hyde's disappearance was a favorite among the canyon lore. One night in October 1971, river guide Rick Petrillo stood amid his tour group around the crackling campfire. He looked over the tired faces and said, It was just a few miles downstream from here that the Hyde's disappeared. Then one of the tourists, an older woman in her 60s, said, I know. I'm Bessie Hyde. The other guide on the trip, a geologist named George Billingsley, looked at the older woman with surprise, but she just kept staring into the fire. He asked her what had happened back in 1928. The woman said, I killed him. Somewhere along here, we had a real bad fight, and he beat me up. So, late that night, I stabbed him. After I drug him into the river and turned the boat loose, I walked up to Peach Springs and caught a Greyhound bus. The elderly tourists' claims spread quickly among the river guide companies. The story was retold with a healthy dose of skepticism until December 11, 1976, when Emery Kolb died. As Kolb's family combed through his home on the rim of the Grand Canyon, they found a complete human skeleton inside an old canoe and there was a bullet hole in the skull. With the woman's story and now a body in Emery Kolb's boathouse, a second theory about the Hyde's disappearance emerged. What if Bessie really had killed Glenn, perhaps with the assistance of Emery Kolb? The woman who claimed to be Bessie was in her 60s, which was the right age. It had been over four decades since 23-year-old Bessie's disappearance. The skeleton at Kolb's was a male in his 20s, like Glenn had been. The dates lined up. There was more corroborating evidence in the records of Otis Marston, a historian and river guide who'd spent 30 years collecting relics and testimonies about the Colorado River. Marston had a particular interest in Glenn and Bessie Hyde's story, and he tracked down several people who had known them. Marston had interviewed Kolb, as well as Adolf Sutro and most of the other would-be rescuers. Kolb had told Marston that Bessie seemed ready to quit the trip, while Glenn was anxious to continue. Bessie had complained about several of the most harrowing rapids they'd encountered. She was scared of the river. Marston also noted that Bessie had had a premonition that she wouldn't survive the trip. She gave Kolb's daughter some of her clothes and even made the comment about never wearing shoes again. Especially bizarre when you consider the Hyde's boots left in the scow. Marston had also interviewed Bert Lozon, a park ranger who'd been at the Kolb camp when the Hyde's passed through. Lozon said, the little woman was sick of it when she reached this far. Glenn wanted to make a record taking the first woman through she just had no enthusiasm. She was dejected and went on only because he insisted. Bessie had written about her fear and exhaustion in letters to her family and in her journal. And another interview shed more light on Bessie's frustrations in their final days. Near Hermit Camp, 
A mule packer named Bob Francie heard an argument between the hides, which ended only when Glenn forced Bessie into the boat. And Adolf Sutro recalled Glenn's obsession with the river trip's record-setting potential. Bessie would be the first woman to run the Grand Canyon, and she would do it in a homemade scow. If Glenn was determined to break a record, he needed Bessie. She wasn't allowed to quit. It comes down to Glenn's temperament. And though Sutro wasn't impressed by the scow or the hide's foolish optimism, he said Glenn was decent, not domineering. And the woman's testimony on the tour in 1971 only raised more questions. She said she'd stabbed Glenn in the middle of the night and dumped his body in the river. But if Bessie had left Glenn in the water, how did the skeleton end up in Emery Kolb's boathouse? Some have speculated that Kolb and Bessie might have had a tryst. Maybe Kolb shot Glenn and Bessie covered up the crime with a story about abuse and the stabbing. She'd already been divorced once after a mysterious marriage. Her reputation wouldn't survive another scandal. But after Glenn's alleged homicide, Kolb stayed in the Grand Canyon with his wife and children for the rest of his life. It was hardly the behavior of a murderer who'd killed a man over an affair. However, more answers became apparent as the skeleton from the canoe was analyzed. Dr. Walter Birkby, a forensic anthropologist in Arizona, analyzed the bones for clues, specifically focused on the bullet hole in the skull. The slug was 32 caliber, fired from a pistol first manufactured in 1902, so the chronology worked. The skeleton was roughly as tall as Glenn as well. But the similarities ended there. Birkby took photographs of the skull and lined them up with the final portrait Sutro took of Glenn. The facial features didn't match at all, and the bones were determined to have belonged to a man who was 20 years old when he died, Glenn was 30 in 1928. Emery Kolb's grandson undermined this theory further with his unwavering testimony that his grandfather had discovered the skeleton in 1919. It couldn't possibly have been Glenn Hyde. Still, the theory that Bessie killed Glenn persisted until 1985 when author Scott Thiboney tracked down the woman who claimed to be Bessie in Ohio. He asked her again point-blank if she was Bessie Hyde and what had happened in 1928. The woman denied the entire story. She'd made the claim on a whim to add some suspense to the tour. In her hometown, she was known as a big personality who liked to be the center of attention. Her real name was Liz Cutler. Her life through adolescence and young adulthood was well-documented. The chances that she was Bessie Hyde are slim. But the mysterious disappearance was still a favorite topic on the Colorado, and master river guide Brad Dimmick recreated the Hyde's journey for a book he wrote in 2001. He and his wife piloted a hand-built scow through the Grand Canyon. When they reached mile 232, Brad believed he found the rapids that had claimed Glenn and Bessie's lives. The stretch along Mile 232 is, to this day, considered one of the most dangerous of the entire Colorado River. A rock outcropping called the Fangs 
lies in the middle of the river, unavoidable to all but the smallest and most nimble riverboats. Glenn and Bessie were in an enormous 20-foot pine scow. Dimmick believes there was no way they could have passed the rapids without serious trouble. And Bessie's journal tally of the rapids they traversed ended just before 2.32. The pour-over and boil near mile 2.32 is extremely violent no matter how high or low the water level might be. If the hides had gone overboard, swimming would have been very difficult and they would have been quickly overcome by the rushing current. The scow was found five miles downriver from mile 232, and there was no sign of life after Bessie's final journal notation. Whether in the rapids or somewhere close by, Dimmick claimed the hides had been killed in this stretch of water. In June 1929, six months after the hides vanished, the Colorado flooded heavily, and the high rushing water would have washed away any further evidence or corpses. Alternatively, in the unlikely event that one or both of the hides had made it off the river, they would have perished in an attempt to climb out of the gorge. The Grand Canyon offers little shade from the blistering sun during the day, and the temperatures drop below freezing at night. As their supplies were found in the scow, they certainly had very little food or water. Today, most river guides and historians contend that the hides ran into trouble in the rapids at mile 232 and ended up in the water where they drowned. The boat simply floated on until it got hung up on rocks five miles downriver. While this scenario is widely accepted, it can never be proven with any certainty. Without conclusive evidence, which is unlikely to ever be found, The tragic honeymoon adventure is still a good story, still told around campfires along the Colorado River. In that way, Glenn and Bessie Hyde's journey was successful in that it made them famous, just like Glenn and Bessie had hoped. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Gone for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Gone was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>